0: Exodus chapter 13, verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God said, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert road towards the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of Egypt ready for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, because Joseph had made the Israelites swear an oath. He had said, God will surely come to your aid. Then you must carry my bones up with you from this place. After leaving Succoth, they camped at Etham on the edge of the desert. By day the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light. So that they could travel by day or night, neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of light of fire by night left its place in front of the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, "Tell the Israelites to turn back and camp near Pi Hahiroth, between Migdal and the sea. They are to camp by the sea, directly opposite Baal Zephon." Pharaoh will think that Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled... Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, What have we done? We have let the Israelites go and have lost their services. So he had his chariot made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots, along with all the other chariots of Egypt, with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea near Pi-Hahiroth, opposite Baal-Zephon.
1: As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you you need only to be still. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to the one side and light to the other, so neither went near the other all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground, with a wall of water on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued them, and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He jammed the wheels of their chariots so that they had difficulty driving, and the Egyptians said, Let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing towards it, and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day, the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, The people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant.
2: How many of you know anything about giant sea turtles? Clearly, lots of you need to watch a bit more David Attenborough or Octonauts, uh, because that's where we've learned a great deal about giant sea turtles in our family. And one of the subspecies of giant sea turtles that we particularly love is a group that always always go back to a particular beach, same beach, in Papua, Indonesia, to lay their eggs every single year. And when you watch this remarkable effort to lay these eggs securely, these huge turtles that you might see a quick glimpse on the screen in a minute, um, who weigh up to 500 kilos, and obviously designed by God to swim through the sea, drag themselves up this enormous sandy beach in order to be able to dig a hole to safely lay their eggs above the waterline such that their eggs would be safe. It's an absolutely remarkable picture of parental love and sacrifice and care in order to make sure that their little turtles are going to survive. Apart from the fact that once she's laid her eggs and covered them over, mum drags herself back to the sea swims off, and is gone for good. So when these little turtles are born sometime later, their first moments of life are not looking up into the eyes of a loving mum, thinking what a wonderful world to live in. When they scramble out of their shell and sand, there are hungry seagulls in the sky desperate to eat them. There are predators on the beach ready to devour them, and the the clock is ticking for them to drag their tiny little shells all the way into the sea in order to get into safety. And if you've watched any of that kind of episode on whatever it may be, planet Earth, there's a moment when you're seeing these tiny little turtles scrambling for their lives, having never seen anything in the world before, where one of the thoughts that goes through your mind is, where's your mum? Like, seriously, this 500-kilo mum could have sheltered loads of these little turtles. Now, I mention all of that because sometimes we can be tempted to think the same about God, especially when we are struggling with with doubt or anxiety or chronic pain or grief as a consequence of the loss of a loved one or a friendship. And you know in your heart, you know, Lord Jesus Christ, I know that I'm only a Christian because you saved me. You broke into my life of sin and have brought me into saving faith. But all that I can see right now is this overwhelming struggle with all of these things. And my heart cries out, Lord, why have you abandoned me? Now, in a very different context, but with a similar struggle, It's the same question the Israelites wrestled with in our text. There have been these ten miraculous plagues that have brought God's people out of Egypt. They're on their way to the promised land, but freedom seems to be one step forward and then ten steps back. And at this point in their journey, they are brought to a point of despair and desperation. It's a story, as Andy said, that many of us are very familiar with. But I hope that as we look at it afresh, we are going to be gripped by the central idea of this big passage this morning. That God is present to protect his people and punish his enemies, all to bring glory to himself. That's the whole of this passage As best as I can distill it into one sentence God is present to protect his people, to punish his enemies, all to bring glory to himself. God is present, he's not absent. Christian, you may not be able to understand or explain the season that the Lord has brought you in right now, but God's still present. And as we're going to see through this remarkable episode, he is working in and through all things in the life of the Israelites as they face the Egyptian army and in your life as you go back to the busyness and the hustle and the bustle and the stresses and the strains and the worries on Monday. He's at work in all of it to bring himself glory. And as we're going to see towards the end, doing so for your good. Now, we're going to see that in two big ideas in our text. And the first is that God protects his people by being present with them. And we see that in the final section of chapter 13. It's a little bit less obvious for us, but um, in verses 17 and verse 21, Moses uses the same word to describe what God is doing. and the Hebrew, it's nakah. In English, it's translated differently, but it's the same word in the Hebrew. Verse 17, Moses says in our English Bibles that God is leads. And verse 21, God will guide. He is guiding them on his way. For Moses, they're one and the same word. It's an idea that wraps up this final section. God is leading and guiding his people. God isn't like the giant sea turtle. God hasn't done this miraculous rescue, got them out of Egypt, then disappeared off into the sunset and leave them to sort out the rest of the details themselves. He is with them. He is leading and guiding them. And Moses describes three lovely ways that God protects his people by being present with them. That's what I want us to see first of all. Firstly, God knows our weakness. Now, if you were living in Moses' day and you just got out of Egypt and you typed Canaan into Google Maps, The fastest way to get from where you were to where you wanted to go to was via a big highway called the Via Maris, which meant the way of the sea. And on this map, that's the purple road, the line I should say, that you can see just hugging the coast of the Mediterranean. If you were to walk that, then or today, it would take you about two weeks. But that's not the way that God led them. Instead, verse 18, he led them around by the desert road towards the Red Sea. There's the Red Sea. That's south, not northeast. What is God doing? Look at verse 17. He's protecting them from themselves. Because if they faced war, they might change their minds and return to to Egypt. God knew that his people weren't ready to face war, but the Philistines are ready and willing and eager to fight. I think that shapes the way that we need to read verse 18. In our translation, we've got in verse 18, so God led the people around the desert by the road towards the sea. The Israelites went up out of Egypt ready for battle. It's a tricky word to translate that, ready for battle. I think in light of what we know in verse 17, God's protecting them from themselves, it either means that though they came out of Egypt armed and ready for battle, God knew that they weren't ready for battle in their hearts, so he sends them a different way. Or, a better way to translate verse 17, I think, is not that they came out of Egypt physically armed and ready for battle, it's that they came out in an orderly, military-like way. This isn't some... Crazy stampede where people are going to get crushed in the excitement. This is calm and organized, and the God who knew their weaknesses was with them. So they headed off on what my dad would call the scenic tour, which always meant the very, very long way round. And the second way God protects his people is by fulfilling his promises. It's what Moses records, this detail of carrying Moses's, uh, sorry, Joseph's bones with them. If you flip back to Genesis 50, Joseph had given his brothers really specific instructions 400 years earlier. Verse 24, I'm about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph made the Israelites swear an oath and said... God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones from this place. We often think about Joseph living his life by faith. Joseph faced death by faith. Joseph knew that God was going to keep his promises. He knew that God was personally going to come and bring his people and lead them out to the promised land. And that, 400 years later, is the journey his bones are beginning. Now you picture being a part of that crowd, and we know there's a lot of them, two to three million probably, and there's a box somewhere being carried of Joseph's bones they function like an advertising hoarding. Every single Jew that looked at that coffin would think, God always keeps his promises. It's what Joseph knew. It's what he lived his life by. It's how he faced the death in his life. God always keeps his promises. And we see that, thirdly, in the way that his promises are fulfilled. Joseph had said, God will come to your aid and surely lead you, i.e. God's going to be present with you on this journey. And the third thing we see is that God guides his people. This, This pillar of cloud and fire is the most visible way that you could ever imagine, in some ways, God to show that he is present with his people by Day in a pillar of cloud. By night, same pillar, but in the night, this pillar's got this fiery light to it such that, verse 21, the people could travel by day or night. But this cloud is more than their personal satnav. This cloud is a manifestation of the presence of God himself. It's what we sometimes call a theophany, an appearance of God. And you can see that in verse 21. By day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud. If you drop down to chapter 14 and verse 24, um, during the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army. God is physically, personally in that sense, present with them. And verse 22, he never left them which you might think would be nice to have today. Wouldn't it be lovely to have something physical to look at, to reassure yourself before that important appointment or exam or interview? Wouldn't it be great if you could have a cloud that moved to answer all of your questions in life? Where should I buy a house and the cloud shuffles along to number 17 Privet Drive whom should I marry and everybody waits as the cloud moves around the room you can look at all of those kinds of things and think actually in some ways it might have been easier being a believer in the old covenant but that way of thinking only serves to show that we have forgotten the fullness of and the riches of the blessings of being new covenant people. What does it mean for us to know the presence of God? Well, we don't have to picture with sight some pillar of cloud we have what the writer to the Hebrews describes in chapter 1. We have the spoken word and revelation of God through his Son, who is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Here are all of these Jews out in the desert looking at this pillar of cloud. They're going to sense fear and wonder, but are they really going to know the fullness of God's character? Are they going to know his just and holy anger against sin, but also his compassion and his mercy for the lost? You only see that in the person Of the Lord Jesus Christ. And how do we know the Lord Jesus Christ who lived on this earth 2,000 years ago and is now in heaven? You can't see him. But we have his word. We have God's full and final word as a record of his revelation, of his plans throughout all of history. And in the person of his son. And, in case you're still hankering after the clouds. The triune God of heaven who has eternally existed in the persons of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit gives His Spirit to live within the hearts of every single Christian. The Spirit who inspired every word of God's Word lives in your heart to open your minds to understand what it means. He's at work to encourage you in all of the things that you are doing in your Christian life. He's at work to change you, to become more and more like the Lord Jesus. He's the deposit guaranteeing your inheritance. And he is the one through whom, the one who began a good work in you, will carry it on to completion. Please don't read this story and think it would be so much easier to have been a believer in the days of the Old Testament Jews. There's a fullness and a richness to what God has given us in the new covenant. But... But the cloud was all that the old covenant people needed at that time to know that God was present with them. And that he was protecting them and guiding them with his presence. And even though God hadn't taken them on the via Marais up through that shortcut, they knew, verse 20, that they were close to freedom. Verse 20, after leaving Succoth, they entered at Etham on the edge of the desert. The desert's not the promised land. But the the desert is a way of putting miles and miles of sand between them and Pharaoh. They're being brought right to the brink of freedom. Which means it's really hard to understand the beginning of chapter 14. What does God say? Tell the Israelites to turn back and camp near Pi-Hahiroth between Migdal and the sea. They're to camp by the sea directly opposite Baal-Zephon. And there's all sorts of theories about exactly where all those three places are. The short answer is, biblical archaeologists just don't know. What do we know? They're going backwards. The Lord has brought them to the point of the boundary of freedom where they could look upon a vast expanse where they could get lost before they eventually get to the promised land. And God's brought them back. And he's told them to camp in a place that they know is going to make them vulnerable. Because if Pharaoh was to find them, here they are, two to three million people. They haven't got any enormous armaments, and they're hemmed in by the sea. Now, you may know how the Israelites were feeling. Not, I hope, in that sense of feeling physically trapped, like you might get assaulted. I pray that's not what you're worried about. But in the sense of feeling that there are times in your life when you've been brought to a point where you can see what what freedom and blessing and, and the next opportunity might look like. And then for whatever reason, the Lord has changed your circumstances and brought you back. And perhaps you're wrestling with that now. You've done so in the past. You have asked on more occasions and you can remember, Lord, what are you doing? Not in an accusatory way, but in a, Lord, I don't understand. Those things looked good from your word, that I would understand them to be a blessing, and yet they're not what you're choosing to give me right now. What are you doing? As we look at God's very clear answer in Exodus 14, I hope it will encourage your heart in the situations of your life at the moment. Second big point is that God gains glory for himself through salvation and judgment. God gains glory for himself through salvation and judgment. And God couldn't be clearer about that. You look in verse 4. I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. You go down to verse 17. He says the same thing. I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army. Verse 18. I, the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. What is God's primary objective? It is not to ensure that the Israelites are just comfortable. It isn't to keep them necessarily out of harm's way. It is to bring himself glory. And the remarkable thing is that as the uniquely glorious God brings glory to himself, which is the greatest and best thing that could ever happen of anything in the universe, his people can know hope and comfort. Now I want us to pause there for a minute and just follow that train of thought for a minute because if you've got that piece set in your mind, then you can understand why Exodus 14 is such an encouragement. God is working all things together to bring Himself glory. That is, always has been, and always will be God's purpose in the universe, not just the world. Now, how does the New Testament help us understand how God will do that? Well, Paul gives us part of the answer in Philippians chapter 2. Jesus, as Paul reminds us, has come into the world that He made, He suffered, He's bled, He's died. And then Paul tells us in chapter 2 and verse 9, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So what will bring the Father glory? Glory. It is for all of creation to bow the knee and recognize that his Son, our Savior, is Lord. God is glorified when his Son is honored. So now, where do we fit in that picture? How is it good news for us that all things will work to ensure that God is glorified? Well, what does it mean to be a Christian? It means that by God's grace we have stopped being an enemy who doesn't care about God and have been brought to become a son or a daughter of God who lovingly recognize that the Lord Jesus Christ is Lord it's one of the great themes of our the great theme of our life it's what shapes who we are and what we do and on top of that as though that wasn't enough when you become a christian you become an heir of God and a co-heir with Christ which means that right now The Lord Jesus Christ says, spiritually speaking, I know there's all the busyness of your life going on right now, but spiritually speaking you are so secure in your faith that you are seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. And when the Lord Jesus Christ returns, you will rule and reign with him in the new heavens and the new earth. Now can you see how God's glory in the exaltation of his son is wonderfully securing your good and your hope and your comfort. Now, Back in the Old Covenant, that amazing plan of redemption had not been completely revealed to the people. But if you know that that's the trajectory, you can see how God's glory and our good are inseparably intertwined together. And you see that in three ways in this chapter. God gains glory for himself through salvation and judgment, and that is for the good of his people. I want you to see that in three ways. We'll be fast. God plans our difficulties. If you are hurting especially, please would you note that down. We are not here at this point in the story because the Israelites missed the cloud one night and took a wrong turn in the desert. We're here because of God's plan. Look at all the specifics of the detail. Verse 2, he sent the Israelites back and told them where to camp. Verses 3 and 4, he controlled Pharaoh's reaction. Of course, he knows Pharaoh inside out. He's his creator. He knows that Pharaoh's going to suddenly think when all the despair of the plagues is over, oh no, we've lost all of our workforce. Let's go get them back. But God's in control of all of that. This isn't Pharaoh's brilliant idea. God's the one who hardened his heart and ensured, verse 9, that the Egyptians caught up with the Israelites. It's all God's plan. So there's... The Jews, looking at this onslaught of an army, and I know you might think two to three million people, 600 chariots, really, is that really going to be that scary? You just think about all the things that we have been following in the news of the aircraft that Ukraine are asking for, the numbers that they need in order to protect the country. If you've got the most super powerful weapon in the world, you don't need so many of them in order to have complete control over a huge number of people. The, the Israelites look up, they see this massive army And they're terrified. But it's not the end because God has planned their difficulties. Secondly, God brings himself glory by being patient with his sinful people. Now, be fair, human, empathetic with the Israelites. They had no idea what God is about to do. All they can see is that they are facing an unstoppable army and they are hemmed in by an immovable sea. (laughs) There's nowhere to go. But, let's also be fair, that's not the only things that they knew. Chapter 13, verse 17, God was protecting them. Chapter 13, verse 19, God was going to deliver them to the promised land. Chapter 14, verse 4, God is going to act in such a way that brings him Glory. That's what they knew, or at least that's what they should have remembered. What happens when they see the 600 plus chariots racing towards them? They forgot everything. The only thing they can remember is, "Ah, oh, that's a massive army. We're about to die. Now, what they feared was it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. You see what's going on in their hearts. This moment of crisis has revealed where they truly are. And they still, even after all of the plagues and the Passover, they still don't know what's best for them. Would it have been unjust for the God of heaven and earth, who has just done all of that to rescue them, to judge them at this point? No, I don't think it would have been unjust. But what does God do? He's unfailingly Patient, I much prefer the old translation for that word. He is long suffering with the sinfulness of his people. He says through Moses, verse 13, Don't be afraid. The Hebrew is really emphatic. Do not, not be afraid. Stand firm, and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. God had brought them to this point for a purpose. It wasn't so that they would finally realize that they had enough strength within them to conquer this, move out and be strong. Neither was it that they would start to work together as a nation and realize that together they were strong enough to conquer this enemy and move on. It was, verse 14, that they would be brought to their knees and see the Lord fight for them. What do they need to do? Depending on your translation, to be still or to be silent. Both meaning nothing. Just watch. Which is really hard. Charles Spurgeon knew that. He described how hard it is to watch like this. I dare say you will think it's a very easy thing to stand still. But to stand at ease in the midst of tribulation shows a veteran spirit long experience, and much divine grace. We struggle to be still because we want to do our bit. We want to earn our crust, as it were. We want to be able to say that we've done something here, but God sets them down, showing them that there is nothing that they can do in this battle so that they would have their eyes opened afresh to see the Lord fighting for them. They had to watch. Well, actually, there's one thing they needed to do. Alec Martier has a a lovely emphasis. He looks at verse 15 and says, The pilgrims did, however, have an earthly task and duty to fulfill. They had to continue with their pilgrimage, for Moses was told, verse 15, to move on. Verse 15 always makes me smile whenever I get to it in my Bible reading. This is like a bigger obstacle than Tom Cruise has ever faced in any Mission Impossible film. Here is a vast people, two to three million, and a sea that they can't cross because otherwise they would have done so themselves. And what does God say? Walk on. Which would be ridiculous and impossible and utterly unachievable were it not for the fact that God himself is going to part the waters. Gets you to the final way that God brings glory to himself. He miraculously saves and destroys to bring himself glory. Verses 19 and 20, God moves this pillar in which he's manifested himself to the back. It, it functions now like a divine bodyguard, and it brings to the Egyptians on this side great darkness, so they can't see what's happening, just like they'd with the plague of darkness. But on the other side to the Israelites, it brings them light. Why do they need to see? It's the night, and what's happening on the other side, coming from the east, is a strong wind. God wants this nation to see as they look over the sea, the inexplicable happening in front of them. As this vast water is displaced and pushed aside, as it comes closer towards them to create these walls of water and this dry ground. And Moses is really specific about the detail. This is Dry ground that they walk on. It's not wet ground, it's not damp ground. He's very clear this is dry ground. And the water they walk through, the word is that they are walls of water. It's the same word walls that is used to describe the high city walls that give you the security and the peace that you're safe because you're behind a high wall. This is not some natural phenomenon of a tidal shift removing a few inches of water. This is an otherwise inexplicable miracle of the God who's created all things and who is showing his glory in the way that he's going to save the Israelites. But as we all know, this same space of water is going to be used to destroy the Egyptians. And so many of us have read this story so many times. I want you just to focus this morning on God's sovereign control over it all. Verse 24, it's the Lord who looked down from the pillar at the Egyptians. Verse 24 again, it's the Lord who threw them into panic and confusion. Verse 25, it's the Lord who jammed their wheels. Some translations say removed their wheels. Either which way you look at it, their chariots have gone from being weapons to be feared to weights to be fled from. God is completely in charge of all of this. And verse 26, 27, it's the Lord who swept them into the sea. God is doing all of this. If You can remember all the way back in Exodus 3 when God met Moses at the burning bush. He described to Moses, So I have come down to rescue the Israelites from the hand, the power of the Egyptians. How would God do it? God told Moses at the burning bush. Exodus 3 verse 19. By a mighty hand that compels Pharaoh. Now get to the end of the story. What does Moses tell us in chapter 4 verse 30? That day the Lord saved Israel from their hands, the power of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore and the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians. God had done exactly what he had promised all the way from Abraham and Joseph and to Moses. He'd shown his omnipotence. He'd rescued and enslaved people out of Egypt. He had done it, verse 31, in such a way that the only right response of the people of God is to fear the Lord And put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. Now the word fear is exactly the same word as we've got translated terror in verse 10. But now there's a difference. See in verse 10, the Israelites are looking at Pharaoh's great power to be used against them. And they're terrified. By the time you get to verse 31... They know a greater power. It's the power of the God of heaven and earth. And his power is used for them to protect them. Which means that their response to the demonstration of God's power is not the same sense of of terror. It's of trust. It's of recognizing the power of God is for the good of his people. And he's the one who will protect his people it couldn't have been more helpful for Andy to have read at the beginning of our service that if God is for us who can be against us that's the confidence that all of this will have instilled in God's people now as we close all of that is right and true but perhaps you're thinking to yourself where is that power displayed today Again, if you were to put yourself in the shoes of the Israelites, you might think, well, in one sense, it would have been really helpful for them to have seen all of those dead bodies of the Egyptians because it would have built up their faith. It would have reminded them that God is that powerful. And yes, there are lessons for us to learn because we can read this reliable record of what God has done in history and we can know that he is that powerful. But is he still exercising that power today? Where is that power at work? And the best answer to that question is found at the cross and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. At the very beginning of his letter to the Romans, Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. You see, as much as the Exodus proved God's power to judge and rescue, nothing proves it as gloriously as the cross. That's where we see that left to ourselves, we deserve the judgment of God too. There was nothing inherent in the Israelites that enabled them to justify going through the safe dry ground rather than getting washed to death by the waters. It was the grace of God as it is for us. And at the cross we see, it's nothing but the grace of God that exercises his power for our good. We're born not just as slaves to sin, we're born as enemies of God. And that's what is overcome at the cross when God solves our unsolvable problem. It's his Son, who comes to be with us, not as a manifestation in the form of a fiery or a cloudy pillar, became one of us eternal God of heaven became one of us to live the life that we couldn't, die the death that we deserved, such that we could know as we trust in him, we have nothing to fear. We look at the cross and what do we see? We see the Lord fighting for us. We see the greatest occasion ever when we are reminded that we can but be still. For there is nothing we can do but behold the greatness and the unending sacrificial love of God for sinful people like me. Paul tells us in Ephesians that God's incomparably great power for us who believe. So hear that. As you go to work tomorrow, as you visit your family, as you do your chores, God's incomparably great power for you who believe is the same mighty strength that he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. That does not mean you will not face trials, or that I won't. The Jews face trials, supremely the Lord Jesus faced trials, and you too will face trials. But God will be with you. The great story of this part of Exodus is that we would know the power of God that is with us through his risen and reigning son. That you would know that God is present with us because he is with us through his spirit who is at work within our hearts and will get us home. And with all of that, we can say to our soul, be still. My soul, your God will undertake to guide the future as he has the past. Your hope, your confidence, let nothing shake. All now mysterious shall be bright at last. And we're going to sing these words together as we close. Be still, my soul, the winds and waves still know the voice of Christ that ruled them here below.